0: So my topic today is a mismatch between our democratic ideals, on the one hand, and democratic reality, on the other. So in our democratic ideal, citizens make informed, rational, unbiased political decisions. They take their moral values and their uh, their view of the facts into account, reach some conclusions about the merits of various policies. or the merits of various politicians and candidates, and then vote accordingly. Democratic reality, the empirical literature shows, often doesn't look like this. Citizens often make very uninformed, irrational, and biased political decisions. Now, the literature on this is huge, and I can't survey all of it, so I'm going to try to give you a few sort of illustrative examples uh, of what I mean by political ignorance and political irrationality. So, let's start with political ignorance. So, often this is measured by giving people these sort of political knowledge tests, which ask people questions like, you know, name your congressman or can name your MP. Turns out most people can't do this. And the critique of these kinds of political knowledge tests is always well, do people really need to know, like, the name of their local representative in order to have informed opinions about policy matters and that kind of thing? These tests, a lot of people say, aren't really measuring the right kind of But even when we start to look at the right kind of political knowledge, things still don't look so good. So here's here's one example. So just after the US Supreme Court upheld some key provisions of Obamacare, uh, Pew asked people uh, about their opinions on the ruling. 76% of people expressed an opinion. And as you can see, they were more or less divided, 36% approved, 40% disapproved. Uh, However, when asked what the court had only 55% answered correctly. So we have 76% of people expressing an opinion, and only 55% of the, about which way the court had ruled, and only 55% of the people actually knew which way the court had ruled. So we have 20%, more than 20%, expressing an opinion about the merits of the Supreme Court decision that don't know which way the Supreme Court has ruled. Another example. One of the big issues of the 2012 election was Obama's proposal to raise the top tax rate. About two-thirds of the population was in favor of this. 69% said, yes, raise the top tax rate. Except when you asked people a different question, which is, how high should the top tax rate be, 75% say it should be lower than 30%. Now, the actual tax rate at the time, the top tax rate at the time, was 35%. So people are simultaneously telling you the top tax rate should go up, and also it should be lower than it actually is. It's difficult to interpret this without reaching the conclusion that people just have no idea what the the top tax rate is. Uh, An example that's making some rounds right now, if you ask people do you support mandatory labeling on all genetically modified foods, about 80% say yes. You ask people do you support mandatory labeling on all foods containing DNA? About the same number of people say yes. Problem with this, of course, is, well, if you have mandatory labels on all food containing DNA, that's all food. Um, A lot of these examples come from the US. Lest you think that this is sort of unique to the US, here's an example from the UK. Shortly uh, Shortly before, I think it was, the EU referendum are the uh, UK's EU referendum. Uh, Ipsos asked people, what percentage of the UK population are EU immigrants? Across the board, everybody vastly overestimated this. But interestingly, uh, leave voters overestimated it by about twice as much as remain voters. They thought 20%, a fifth of the UK population, they thought were EU immigrants, when in fact the actual answer is 5%. So these are some examples of what I think are fairly politically relevant facts, facts that you think if people are making informed choices about tax rates, informed choices about whether the UK should be in the EU, these are things they should probably know. All right, now let's talk about political irrationality. So depending on your discipline, you probably have your own sort of conception of what irrationality involves, you know, Economists have their notion, philosophers have their notion, decision theory has a different notion. I'm going to operate with a very sort of loose and non-technical definition of irrationality here. Uh, By irrational, I'm basically going to mean that people's beliefs are not responsive in the right kind of way to reasons and evidence, and that their beliefs are often influenced by factors that we think really ought to be irrelevant. So let me give you an example of the latter. uh, views are influenced by things that ought to be relevant. So here's an experiment that was uh, reported in Science by uh, Alex Todorov and his colleagues back in 2005. They had people view pairs of photographs from the U.S. House and Senate uh, races. So these are candidates. This was on screen for one second. People saw this, these photographs for one second and were then asked to rate Which candidate was more competent? The resulting judgments of competence predicted the results of US Senate and House races in the 2000, 2002, 2004 elections with accuracy rates significantly above chance and in some cases as high as 73%. Predicting 73% of House and Senate races by a one second exposure to the candidates' faces it's even better. This was with adults. Uh, Antonakis and Dalgas, in a paper that came out in Science a few years later, gave kids, ages five to 13, the following task. They were shown pictures of two people and asked to circle which one they would choose to captain a sea voyage from Troy to Ithaca. In fact, the photos were were of candidates from the French parliamentary elections. How good do you think the kids were at inadvertently predicting the results? turns out that the kids' choice of captain predicted the results of the French parliamentary election 71% of the time. This is just sort of a piece of the evidence, but there's a ton of literature showing that people's ratings of the attractiveness, physical appearance of politicians plays hugely into their judgments about competence, And that those resulting judgments of competence play hugely into their assessments of the worth of those candidates. It's hard not to look at these findings and wonder whether they played a role in the most recent election in Canada. Did one of these candidates have an advantage in the physical Mm -hmm. appearance department? (laughs) All right, let's talk about a different kind of political rationality now. So here's a very simple, overly simple model of sort of how we think democracy is supposed to work, or at least how i think we think democracy is supposed to work people start off with sort of their moral values and their view of the facts they reason about these and assess various policy proposals and reach some conclusions about you know which policies are just or likely to be effective what the causes of various social problems are and therefore how we should go about solving them and then they Sort of once they've formed their political views, they pick the party or candidate that sort of best represents those views. This is a sort of very simple picture, more or less how we think democracy is supposed to work. A lot of evidence shows that this is how democracy often works in practice. In case you're wondering what the difference is, I've switched the direction of the arrows. People start with political allegiances, most often just the ones they inherited from their parents. Uh, Or they gravitate towards attractive politicians, or politicians they identify with because they share various features, like race, religion, that sort of thing. People then adopt the political views that correspond to their partisan allegiances, help them fit in with their social group, reflect their prejudices, or promote, in some cases, their own narrow self-interests, at least if we're talking about, say, tax policy. And then once people have adopted a political view, at that point, they subsequently search for, interpret, and evaluate reasons and evidence in ways that are systematically biased in favor of the views they've already formed. Now, there's a, again, tons of literature on this. I'm gonna pick just one demonstration of it that I particularly like. So this is a paper uh, by Jeffrey Cohen out of Yale uh, from back in 2003. So Cohen showed self-identified liberals and conservatives, two different Proposed welfare policies. One of the policies was far more generous than any policy that actually exists. It gave people more money for more time than any actual policy. The other was more stringent than any policy that actually exists. It gave people less money for less time than any actual policy. They were then asked which of these policies do you prefer? Or they gave ratings of their sort of approval of each of these policies on a seven point scale. If they were not told which party supported which policy, the self-reported liberals overwhelmingly supported the generous policy, and the self-reported conservatives overwhelmingly supported the stringent one. Not that surprising. What is surprising is that if told the Democrats actually favored the stringent policy and Republicans favored the generous policy, people's ratings of the policies completely reversed. Democrats, or sorry, self-identified conservatives overwhelmingly favored the generous policy. Self-identified Democrats overwhelmingly preferred the stringent one. Now, an intriguing feature of this is that they also asked people, what are the major factors going into your view about the merits of these policies? And people overwhelmingly said, the details of the policy and my own moral values. They explicitly deny that the position of their party had anything to do with their view of the merits of these policies, and yet the evidence clearly shows the contrary. Just so you get a sense of how deep this can go, you might think, well, maybe people are just like kind of, you know, they don't know much about welfare policy, so they just kind of assume that their party knows best and they go along with it. Well, first of all, the effect held even among people who rated themselves as highly knowledgeable about welfare policy. And second, Cohen did another experiment, this time just with self identified liberals. He showed them a fabricated news article describing a proposed welfare policy. Participants were then asked whether they supported or opposed the policy, and then they were asked to write an editorial justifying their conclusion. Now, if there was no party information, if they weren't told which party supported the welfare policy which opposed it, 76% of the subjects wrote editorials supporting the policy. So this was a policy that generally liberals supported, at least if they weren't told anything about the party positions. However, when the article included a, one line indicating that the Republican pol- Party supported the policy and the Democrats opposed it, the results were totally reversed. 71% of subjects wrote editorials explaining why the policy ought to be rejected. Now what's so striking about this is that in both cases, when Cohen looked at the content of the editorials, people justified their choice in terms of the details of the policy and their own moral values. So when they were told which side their party supported, they justified the policy in light of their own values and the details of the policy. When they were told the position of the policy of their parties, They rejected the policy and explained why, again, in terms of the details of the policy and their own moral values. So it starts to look like, as we'll see, people are just rationalizing, coming up with explanations to justify whatever it is will toe the party line. Alright, so that's the mismatch I'm seeing. The mismatch between our democratic ideals, on the one hand, and democratic reality. Now let's talk about what this means for our democratic ideals. We have this mismatch. Does this show that we have to revise our ideals? Does this show that we have to revise our sort of normative theories of how democracy is supposed to work? Well, a first answer is, why would we? Normative theories aren't supposed to tell us just the way the world is, they're supposed to tell us the way the world ought to be, right? Uh, So when it comes to actual politics, political philosophers, political theorists can just admit, yeah, people are frequently biased, irrational, dogmatic, but look, we're not here to describe the actual world. We're telling you the way the world should be, not just how it is. And to do this, a lot of political philosophy takes the form of describing what an ideal society would look like. This is a project known as ideal theory. The goal is to sort of sketch the the normative or the moral outline of what an ideal society would look like. And there's no objection to that kind of theory, that the ideal isn't met. It's no objection to a theory that aims to describe the ideal society to point out that our own society is not ideal. Um, If that were true, then the only sound ideal would be the status quo. Uh, But that can't be right. Part of the point of ideals is that they give us a standard by which to critique the status quo. So the mismatch by itself doesn't really show us that our Ideals are misguided. But what about a slightly different objection? What if we say the problem is not just that there's this mismatch between our ideals and reality, but also that our ideals are, in some important sense, unrealistic, because, look, we're never going to get there. They're never going to be realized. That's never going to happen. In other words, what if the charge is not just that reality falls short of our ideals, but that we fall so far far short of them that they're really just little more than kind of utopian fantasies. Would this show that we should revise our ideals? Now there's a a compelling argument uh, by a philosopher named David Esland, who argues that moral theories of social justice, political authority, political legitimacy, uh, these sorts of moral concepts aren't really shown to have any kind of defect in virtue of the fact that their alleged requirements or presuppositions are very unlikely to be met. In other words, the sort of mere fact that some action or state of affairs is likely to happen
1: doesn't undermine
0: a theory that claims that that state of affairs ought to be brought about or that that action ought to be done. And I think I's right about this, at least in an important sense. And to see this, um, here's one example. So suppose that in 1977 it was very unlikely that uh, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge would, of their own volition, stop murdering ethnic and religious minorities in Cambodia. That fact clearly does not undermine a theory that says or implies that the Khmer Rouge ought to have stopped committing such murders. Ought doesn't imply likely to. So Eslin takes this to show that charges of voter Ignorance and irrationality are not as damaging to our political ideals as many people think. As he puts it, these charges reveal defects of people, not of our theories. We can simply say that in an ideal democracy, people would be informed, rational and unbiased. If people fall short of this ideal, that just shows that actual people aren't ideal. And we already knew that. And this is more or less what most ideal theorists say. If you come to them pointing out all of the ways in which our world falls short of their ideal, those sort of standard responses, well, yeah. Obviously, the non-ideal world falls short of the ideal. Tell me something I don't know. But at this point, we need to ask, OK, but are there any constraints on our ideals? So let's switch gears for a minute and consider a different ideal. Let's imagine a world, an ideal world, an ideal, lovely society in which there's no scarcity. You can have as much of anything you want, whenever you want. it. Let's further say that in this ideal world, humans are perfectly altruistic. Everyone values everybody else's, desires and preferences and the satisfaction of those desires and preferences just as much as they value their own. And let's also suppose that there's no disagreement. No disagreement about ethics or religion or any of that stuff. Everybody agrees about all of that all of the time. What a lovely, idyllic society that would be. Now I'm inclined to think, that, although in some sense this sounds like an ideal, it's just too unrealistic to be a plausible, ideal vision of society. And most ideal theorists actually agree. So when you look at most ideal theorists, there's a whole lot of things that they assume that even an ideal theory has to take account of. That there's things that even ideal theory can't idealize away. What are some examples? Well, some of the things I just described in that idealic vision of society. Things like scarce resources, limited altruism, moral disagreement. These are things that even I Ideal theories typically say we have to take account of. It. We can't just sort of ignore them or idealize them away or pretend that in an ideal society these problems wouldn't be there. In fact, a lot of ideal theories actually depend on these facts to sort of set up the very problems that those theories are supposed to solve. So, for example, John Rawls's famous theory of justice depends on assuming scarce resources and limited altruism. If you don't make those assumptions, the theory falls apart. Similarly, Eslin's own theory of democracy depends on the inevitability of disagreement about who the political experts are. If you don't make that assumption, the justification for democracy falls apart. So another way to put this is if you assume away <coughs> scarce resources, assume away limited altruism, and assume away world disagreement, then most of the problems that most of our normative political theories are supposed to be solving would cease to be problems. Okay, but so what are the constraints? What are the things that our ideal theory has to take into account? This is a difficult, complex question. and I'm not going to defend a particular answer to it here. That's at least the talk in and of itself. Instead, I want to give you a sense of the kind of constraints that are standardly invoked in the literature. And in particular, I'm going to focus on the very influential account of John Rawls. So Rawls put forth this idea that he called a realistic utopia. He said that the goal of an ideal theory is to depict a realistic utopia. So what's a realistic utopia? Well, he said that it's a reasonable and just society that is feasible and might actually exist, if not now, then at least at some point in the future under happier circumstances. Now, a realistic utopia can obviously depart from the actual world in fairly significant ways. But, Rawls says, it must still be an achievable social world. It can't require us to transcend, quote, the fixed constraints of human life, which include the actual laws of nature, as well as, this is important general facts of moral psychology. All right, so now we can ask. Is having an informed, rational, and unbiased electorate a realistically utopian ideal? Does it satisfy these constraints that are standardly invoked by ideal theorists in order to show why we can't idealize away other things, like limited altruism, scarce resources, and lawless agreement? So can we realize the ideal? Again, hard question to answer. I'm going to give you sort of a sketch of some evidence in one direction. So first question, could people be more informed, rational, and unbiased than they are now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, At least some of the ignorance, bias, and irrationality we observe is just a result of lack of effort. Um, And if people put more effort into things, some things might get better. So I don't want to say, look, we can never do any better than we're currently doing. Um, We should just stop trying. No. We could do better. The question is, how much better? What we want to know is not just can we make any improvements at all, but rather how much improvement are we likely to make even trying our best? Given the kind of psychology we have, how much more rational and unbiased about politics could we be? I'm not particularly optimistic. Uh, I think we can do better. But I think that political irrationality is going to long be with us. The reason for this is that the roots of political irrationality, I think, lie deep in our psychology. They stem from the way that our brain seeks out, processes, and remembers information. Moreover, many of the psychological processes that underlie political irrationality operate outside our conscious awareness and largely beyond our conscious control. So, I'm going to talk about two things in particular that I see as sort of playing a prominent role in political irrationality. One of them is what's called tribalism. So, human beings are what evolutionary anthropologists call a tribal species we're innately predisposed to organize ourselves into competing groups uni- united by distinctive norms, beliefs, ways of life. Uh, Peter Richardson and Robert Boyd, two of the foremost evolutionary anthropologists around, write that the existence of a tribal level of organization is the most striking feature of human social organization. It is fundamental to our adaptations to the environments we live in. We make our livings in stag- a staggering diversity of ways, but a common thread Running through the gamut is the use of symbolically marked groups as foci of uh, cooperation, coordination, and the division of labor. We are adapted to Mm -hmm. living in tribes, and the social institutions of those tribes often elicit strong or sometimes even fanatical commitment. Sound like politics much? Now, these tribal instincts aren't all bad. Uh, In fact, it's these tribal instincts that allow us to have Social organization and cooperation scales larger than the single family or king group. Uh, without these tribal instincts, there wouldn't sort of be societies to divide into factions. But they do tend to divide us into factions. We tend to see the world in terms of us versus them. And this makes us prone to thinking about politics in the way that dedicated sports fans think about sports. We have a favorite team. We're loyal to our team. We see our team as the good guys. The other team is the bad guys. And when we're in the grips of such thinking, trying to get people to agree about politics is sort of like trying to get fans of rival sports teams to agree about who should win the championship. It's like bringing down a bunch of people from Montreal and getting a bunch of people from Toronto and trying to get them to agree about whether the Habs or the Leafs should win the Stanley Cup. Like, it's just... That's the sort of psychology at work here. The second sort of big aspect of our psychology is what's called motivated reasoning. And Cohen's study that I talked about earlier, where people switch their views about welfare policy in order to align with their party, beautifully illustrates what happens when tribalism meets motivated reasoning. So what is motivated reasoning? Motivated reasoning is a kind of umbrella term for an array of cognitive and affective processes that systematically skew our evaluations of reason and evidence in favor of conclusions that we, in some sense, want to be true. Uh, As one review of the motivated reasoning literature puts it, people, like attorneys, often have a preference for reaching one conclusion over another, and these directional motivations serve to tip judgment processes in favor of whatever conclusions preferred. Uh, Philosopher Michael Humer calls these, non-epistemic belief preferences. Preferences for things that we want to believe for reasons that are independent of the truth of those propositions or how well supported they are by the evidence. Now, what people want to believe obviously varies a great deal, but a wealth of evidence in psychology shows that people generally prefer beliefs that advance their self-interest, cohere with their existing beliefs and self-conception, validate their prejudices, and justify their partisan the loyalties. Now, a really important aspect of moral motivated reasoning is that the underlying processes operate mostly outside our conscious awareness. We're generally not aware that we are motivated by anything except a desire to discover the truth. And the fact that our reasoning is systematically skewed is usually more or less invisible to us. From our first-person point of view, it seems to us that we're simply following the reasons and evidence where they lead. Unbeknownst to us, how we search for, interpret, evaluate, weigh, and remember information is systematically biased. Reasons and evidence that support our conclusions we like are more salient, they seem weightier to us, they appear more plausible, they're easier to recall, they're literally easier to remember, and they generate positive feelings. They feel right. Reasons and evidence that conflict with our preferred conclusions are less salient, seem less weighty, appear less plausible, are harder to remember, harder to recall, and they generate feelings of dissonance. They feel wrong. So when we sit back reflectively and take stock of the reasons and evidence, it often seems to us... That the reason and evidence comes out in favor of our preferred conclusions. It seems to us that our resulting beliefs are based on an objective assessment of the facts, even when they're systematically skewed. Psychologists call this the illusion of objectivity. Now, one might insist well, wait, wait, wait. We can overcome this, right? If we just think more critically, think more carefully, really carefully go through the reasons and evidence. Fortunately, the empirical evidence suggests not so much. In fact, not only is careful reflection not a reliable antidote to motivated reasoning, there's some evidence that intelligent people who engage in more reflection are actually more prone to motivated reasoning and more prone to what Elizabeth Cronin calls the bias blind spot. This is our inability to recognize our own reasoning as biased even when we're aware of the dangers of motivated reasoning and we can readily detect it in other people. Part of the explanation for this seems to be that, in some sense, to put it simply, the smarter you are, the better you are at coming up with justifications for what you want to So I think our prospects of overcoming this combination of political tribalism and motivated reasoning are not all that great. Doesn't mean that we can't make some progress, but we're talking about things that are deeply, deeply ingrained in our human psychology and that, like I've said, operate mostly outside of our awareness. And a lot of the literature looking at attempts to debias people, various strategies creating around these, has found that the kinds of inter- interventions we've come up with so far, if they work, usually only work in the lab and usually only for a short period. So I think as long as you have tribalism and motivated reasoning, which is, like I say, are deep aspects of our psychology, I think you're going to get a significant amount of political irrationality. You're going to get people who have political beliefs that are markers of the boundaries of their political tribes and who are going to engage in motivated reasoning to protect or to justify those beliefs. To go back to the sports analogy, as long as these are features of our psychology, trying to get people to reason objectively about politics will be like trying to get sports fans to reason objectively about penalty calls during a game. Now, to be clear, my point is not that people are totally incapable of being rational about politics, nor is it that we can never be rational or unbiased about any particular issue or case. That's not my claim. My claim is simply that the roots of bias and political rationality are so deeply ingrained in our psychology and operate in ways that it's very unlikely that we'll reliably overcome them. That is to say, even if we can, through effort, sometimes overcome them, we're not gonna be able to rel- reliably overcome them. It's sort of like, you know, imagine practicing archery. If you practice really, really hard, you might be able to hit the bullseye a few times. But except for a few exceptional people, most people can't hit that bullseye 99 times out of 100, or even 80 times out of 100. And I think that political rationality is gonna be something like that. That even if we try really, really hard, our success rate's certainly not gonna be perfect and it might not even be all that good. So I think in the day, if, as Rawls and a lot of other ideal theorists say, if ideal theory must take into account, quote, general facts of human psychology, then I submit here are two big facts of human psychology, tribalism and motivated reasoning. And these big facts of human psychology give us a propensity towards a kind of political rationality. So if you think say, as most ideal theorists do, that ideal theory is bound by these constraints, that it must take into a fact, into account these kinds of facts, then really what I'm doing here is suggesting here's another one of those facts. Alright, where do we go from here? Uh, I don't think there are easy answers. Surprise. Politics is hard. Political philosophy is hard. But just give you a sort of sense of the direction I think we need to go, uh, there's a nice example by Steven Pinker in, a, in an article from the New York Times a few years back where he said, what should we do when a hospital patient is killed by a nurse who administers the wrong drug in a patient's IV line? There's two ways we can respond to that. Should we make it easier for the hospital, or should we make it easier for people to sue the hospital for damages? Or should we redesign the IV fittings so that it's physically impossible to connect the wrong bottle to the line? I think that something similar holds with democracy and with political philosophy more generally. Rather than sort of just imploring people, please be more reasonable, please be more rational, please be more informed, I think we need to think about how we design democracy and democratic institutions to work with what we've learned about human psychology. We've learned a lot about how aspects of our environment and aspects of our social situations affect us. And rather than just assuming that people should be informed, people should be rational, people should be unbiased about politics, and developing visions of society based on that assumption, I think we ought to assume that people are often going to be uninformed, people are often going to be biased, that people are often going to be irrational, and develop our vision of the ideal society. Just as political philosophers have already recognized that our vision must be designed to handle limited altruism, scarce resources, and moral disagreement, I think our vision also has to take into account political irrationality. Now, one other thing you might ask is, well, what does this mean for ideal theories? Especially if you have some background in political philosophy, you might think, well, is it really still ideal theory if we have to take into account political irrationality? I mean, that seems like a very non-ideal kind of thing. Intuitively, if we have to start assuming that people are uninformed and irrational. That's just, are we really doing ideal theory anymore? Um, I think there are a few different ways that one can go here, Uh, and I have some ideas about which is the right way, but uh, I've been going on about 40 minutes now, so I'll leave that for the the Q&A if people are interested. Uh, Thanks for coming out today, letting me share some of my work with you, and I look forward to your comments and questions.